Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Game of Thrones to Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, I'm covering Brand's fourth POV chapter with psychologist Gregory Webster. Greg is one of my favorite people to theory craft with. Greg always comes up with a crazy but really compelling alternative theory that makes me read the story differently. And there's just a ton of stuff like that in this chapter with Bran. Steve and I will be covering Kissed by Fire, that's Season 3, Episode 5. This is that famous episode with Jamie and Brienne in the bathhouse. Without further ado, here is medievalist Jana Matthews. Oh, here's a good one. Uh, Was wildfire real? Wildfire, as it's portrayed in in Game of Thrones, no, but it's based on this concept of Greek fire. And so what they did, we we don't exactly know the composition of it, but there's all sorts of these fantastic images and manuscript documents about showing this incendiary material that it's just this these kind of like long tubes of basically like fire that that people would use usually on boats that they would sort of like you know take these bombs and sort of like throw them onto other boats and they would explode and we don't exactly know what the composition is but what scientists and what archaeologists have kind of deemed most likely is some form of like petroleum tar mm. mix, right? That is rolled like a substance is sort of rolled into yeah. it and then set on fire and then it just right explodes. And so you can imagine also what that would look like um in on, on the floating on the water and petroleum does have this ability to to glow into sure. and to have that uh, that color. So yeah, so yes, there is sort of historical precedent for that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. this semester was a graduate class on social psychology okay it's pretty straightforward my very first class Mm. was a social psych class i took it at a junior college in california probably 25 years ago oh wow the professor for the class i i don't know if this is a a clinical term or not but he was crazy (laughs) he He was positive that there was 
someone it was a plant in the class like one of our one of us students was spying on him as a representative of the administration oh wow and he would like write messages on the board mm-hmm. and he said for the plant that's in this class this is for you tell him this you know and he'd write up something that's <laughs> sometimes it was just like fuck you or whatever wow. but it was wow. it was not a uh, i mean this was my very first entree into higher learning <laughs> i thought this is what a very strange <laughs> yeah this is a very strange introduction <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so i'll go ahead and, and get going all right so I'm um, really excited to welcome back uh, Professor Gregory Webster, professor of psychology at University of Florida. Did I get that right, Greg? You got it right. Greg, I was really happy when you agreed to do this chapter because based on our last conversation, you're a really fun person to talk to about theory crafting. Mm-hmm. And th- I think that this chapter has a lot of red meat for those of us who like to put on our tinfoil hats. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you know, also conspiracy theory crafting. Let's not uh, let's not let's, let's not dress not sugar, it up too much. Yeah. <laughs> Don't sugarcoat it. That's what we like. All right, so I'll just do a, a quick synopsis of the chapter, and then we can dive right in. All right, all right. So here's my synopsis. Bran looks out his window and wishes that he could run again with Rick on and Summer. Bran reflects on Old Nan's age and how she came to Winterfell. He reflects on Bran the Builder and other old stories. Nan coaxes him into listening to a story about the horrors of the Long Night and the Last Hero. He's back into the Great Hall, where Rob is offering a hostile reception to Tyrion Lannister. Tyrion asks Bran if he can recall how he fell from the tower. He cannot. Tyrion gives Maester Lewin instructions for a special saddle that will allow Bran to ride. Tyrion departs. Bran returns to his room where he dreams of two gargoyle lions who mean him harm. Over dinner, Bran overhears news of John and Benjen's supposed death. That night, Rob promises him that his mother will return and that he will get to ride to the wall to see John. That's the chapter in a nutshell, but there's tons of stuff to talk about in between. Yeah, so this is one of my favorite chapters just because there's so much backstory from old man, right? Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah. So Gregory Webster, you want to talk about a plot point, a character, a theme, or shall we just climb the ladder of chaos? Let's climb the ladder of chaos and just see where Let's this conversation takes us. I want to know about old man. Let, let me ask you a very broad question, but I'm hoping that you might have some specifics for us. Is old man someone else is there more to her than meets the eye have we met her in a previous story yeah so that's a that's a great question and you know i think at this point there are multiple theories and uh no one can really definitively say who nan is so you've you've already asked the the first and most fundamental question which is is she just a character for exposition an important Mm. one to be sure but maybe there's you know nothing else to her or is she like so many other characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, someone with a backstory uh, who we maybe have met as another character, right. but then she ended up being old Nan, right? So that's what we don't know. And there, I, I've come across multiple theories on who she might be uh, yeah. over the years on various websites and Reddit boards and so on. 
Do you have any uh, well, let's thoughts with, on this? Yeah, I do a little bit, but you know, nothing more than just speculation. Let's start with just a few facts that we know about her, okay? All right, so she's old, and she, according to you know the people who talk about these sorts of things, she may be the oldest person in Winterfell and maybe the oldest person in the Seven Kingdoms. So, you know, who knows how old that actually is? You know, I, I don't know what life expect, life expectancy is like, but in the medieval world, you know, if you if you were lucky enough to live to be like age 10, then a good long <laughs> life could like put you at age 50. And, you know, that would be that'd be a good long life, you know? Yeah. So I don't know how old she really is and we don't know. But, um, you know, she you know, not to say that there weren't people that didn't live to their 90s or more. Uh, you know, during those years. So she's really old and she, she's so old that she was the wet nurse of someone like three generations ago named Bran. Right. 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 Or at least two generations ago. Yes. Right. There's some confusion. Right. uh, We're not (laughs) sure which Brandon she's talking about. Right. Uh, And I guess apparently uh, Catelyn at some point was said to Bran, all all the uh brandons have kind of bled together uh mm-hmm. in old nan's mind that's right which point. could just bespeak old age right like yeah. we know that that folks when they get you know to be older you know their memories do funny things right um so that that could be all that it is right uh but there is some interesting thing about like which brand is he you know it, which it, you know, brings yeah. us to other kinds of theory crafting as well, I suppose. Um, so those are the things we know about her. We know that she's got stories upon stories upon stories, and that s- at least a couple of her stories sound very similar to stories that Blood Raven tells Bran mm-hmm. much later on in these books. Um, so I don't know if there's any other sort of pertinent facts about her. But I think sometimes with characters who have a a nebulous past, readers like to kind of fill in the gaps. Yeah. Well, I think um, she's interesting in that, again, she's kind of tasked with this kind of narrative exposition and background, Mm -hmm. right? So she's telling us about things that are ostensibly fundamental to the kind of overall plot of not just this book, but really the, the whole series, right? So she's one of our first exposures to this idea of this long night that lasted for a generation, right? Where the sun's face is hidden mm-hmm. and uh, things are really looking pretty dire, right? So even so bad that uh, mothers are uh, kind of suffocating and sacrificing their children mm-hmm. uh, just so that, uh, you know, they don't, they don't starve to death, right? Exactly. Yeah, so you know, really dark and heavy stuff for, I guess, eight-year-old Bran or whatever, right? So it's yeah. um, <laughs> although he's almost a man grown. Yes, yes, almost. <laughs> um, so I mean, she's serving a purpose uh, in that way, and if that's, you know, the only purpose of her character, she's still an important one. I'm gonna read yeah. this little portion, but I do want you to finish that thought. So yeah. I-, I thought this was interesting. I hate your stupid stories. The old woman smiled at him toothlessly. My stories? No, my little lord, not mine. The stories are. 
before me and after me, before you too. So I think that there's a little bit of meta narrative going on there. Mm-hmm. So even if she's not like, you know, Shira's sea star, star or whatever, yeah, yeah, that little line does a lot of work both for sort of Bran, who's going to become a, something of a curator of, of Westerosi history or the stories that they mm-hmm. tell, but also for the reader, I think. It almost feels like it's too meta not to be a little wink to the reader. Oh, it is. I, I think it's clearly that. I think it's George yeah. grabbing us by our collective collars and saying, pay attention. Yeah. This yeah, is yeah. potentially truth with a capital T. Uh-huh. Right. So I think throughout this whole series, we're stuck in these, you know, people's narratives. Right. So we're we're tasked with, you know, kind of finding truth, given the biases that each character carries with them. Right. Right. So we always have at least slightly unreliable narrators. But I think this is exactly what you said, just kind of, you know, this meta textual moment where George is kind of telling us that this is, you know, capital T truth coming through here, not just old Nan's viewpoint, but actual real stuff. Yeah. Here's this little glimpse of something that's not related to one of these narrators. Mm -hmm. If you take Nan at her word, right. This story exists without perspective, which of course is impossible. Right. But it is one way to say it in a cryptic way. And um, yeah, I think I, I like I like the way you say it. It's kind of George grabbing us by the collar and saying, listen up, something important's about to happen. And w- what's also kind of interesting is that we learn as we go through the series that a lot of her story about the long night is corroborated by other sources, right? So it may not be mm. a perfect story. We don't know yet if there are ice spiders as big as hounds. I hope not, man. Uh, But it seems like a lot of other things are at least consistent with other stories that we hear. Yeah. I think particularly from people who live north of the wall who seem to have a better, right. uh, Maybe oral, oral history. Yeah. Even in this chapter, you know, she's talking about the children of the forest. And then when Bran hears that Ben Jen's missing, he thinks, Oh, well the children of the forest will help him out. And then, you know, Theon kind of waves it away like that's Snarks and Grumpkins. But then Yorin chimes in and says, hey, you know what? There's a lot of north of the wall that could be true, you know? Yep. So, again, a little wink that, uh, you know, old Nan has has the right of this. I also think that when, you know, she kind of opens with the line, uh, crows are liars, hmm. right? I was going to ask and you so, about that. On the first level reading of it, you could see where she's referring to crows after Bran talking about the the crow he sees in his dream, hmm. right? So that's the kind of first level. It's like, okay, she's, she's referring to that crow, uh, but could also just be, you know, talking about, uh, you know, men of the night's watch or something like that. If she was, you know, maybe a wildling or something in a former life. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any specific, uh, is, is there any specific like sort of theory crafting or conspiracy theory that grabs you? About Nan's identity? Yeah. Do, do you go in for the Shiera Seastar stuff? Because I was reading some of that this morning and I was thinking, yeah. this actually makes a lot of sense. This, yeah, this- I was rereading some of that this morning as well. Um, there are definitely some connections. You know, that would mean that she was the kind of, you know, partner of um, 
uh, Blood Raven, I guess, for a while. Yeah, I, I guess she's called like the paramour of yes. Brendan Rivers or whatever. Yep. Who becomes the Three Eyed Crow later on? And there's rumors that and she, also a, yeah, and also ahead. a crow. <laughs> yeah, who, I mean, he's becomes, also a exactly. member of the Night's Watch and Commander, right. Lord Commander. That's right, and she's kind of framed as this character who loves mischief, mm-hmm. and Nan clearly loves mischief, albeit in sort of a different way. Yeah, and then of course there's this rumor that she uses sort of blood magic to keep herself young. Right. Uh, yeah. So that would be consistent with sure yeah, Nan. Yeah. And the timeline seemed to, to match up. Now, of course, it's like, it could be that George has nothing in mind for old Nan, but I I like to read this chapter as if she's somebody. She's someone that we, yeah. we may have met before. I think it's, it's more likely than not that she is a character of interest or at least has some sort of backstory that we don't know about. Because I think even the name old Nan is kind of a, a generic Yeah. Uh, name for a sure. you know grandmother wet nurse type character right i even had my uh uh great grandmother i called uh nan it's almost like he purposefully gave her a lack of a name so that we might you know figure it out later at some point right 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 um i yeah. also uh in rereading the she harris sea star stuff um i think Somewhere it's noted that uh, uh, Sierra Sea Star selling selling shells by the seashore Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, had, I think, uh, mixed eyes. I think one green, one blue, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. seems to be a a Targaryen uh, trait from time to time. Um, And uh, uh, it's noted that, uh, I think in this chapter, that... uh, she's that nan at this point has um cataracts so you can't really tell what her eye color her natural eye color is all you can tell is that they're kind of a a gray white at this point yeah they're they're milky white yeah that that would be it's kind of a clever way to disguise you know and i guess there is also that other element where it's like and any of us who have experienced age know that it it does feel like we we've lived previous lives like <laughs> like i like i don't honestly i don't think the people that i went to high school would recognize me if they saw me walking down the street and i feel like a different person so yeah. i mean someone that's is you know as old as old nan she could have had a couple different lives you know a couple different previous lives yeah um i thought it was interesting that she refers to the others as white walkers yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't I hadn't noticed that myself. Because yeah. I've always kind of thought, okay, well, the White Walkers was a show only thing, yeah. and the, the almost exclusively the book calls them the others, right? But Old Nan calls them White Walkers, and then you know Bran kind of corrects her and says, "No, they're the others." <laughs> but it's almost like she has. A different, you know, she's accessing a different mythology. Like maybe in a different time and place, they were called White Walkers, but no one in the present kind of knows them as such. That's interesting. And you know, these stories that she's telling, no one takes seriously. Yeah. Uh, but of course, we're we know we know we're supposed to take them seriously, right? 
Yeah, that's a good point, right? So there's the last hero, his dog, his horse, and 12 randos. Yeah, right. Right. yeah sure. That's always how it goes. The, the red shirts, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Another thing is that uh, when Nan is telling her story, she gets this really scary part about, you know, the, the others are stalking our last hero uh, with packs of white spiders, big as hounds. Right. And that's where the story stops. And uh, it says the door opened with a bang and Bran's heart leapt into his mouth in a sudden fear, but it was only Maester Lewin with Hodor looming in the stairway behind him. And Hodor says Hodor. Yeah. And we learn, you know, in the series that Hodor dies protecting Bran holding a door. And I oh, think yeah. we got some confirmation from George R. R. Martin that he's probably going to die in some similar fashion, or at least that. Yeah, the, he said that that was part of the, the outline door. that he gave the showrunners. Right, right. So apparently the the Hodor thing does have to do with holding a door or something. Yeah. And here we get this very clear foreshadowing or this connection between the others or something having to do with the others and Hodor and Bran having the shit scared out of him. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, so no, is... I, you know, it's important that yeah, that clearly Hodor at the door is something of a foreshadowing. Right. Although I, I did not recognize it. I, I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah. Let me ask you a question that maybe a psychology professor could answer. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how we should view someone who, like Bran, who's clearly a child, but who wants, you know, who who really feels like he should be an adult. And a lot of the, character, the characters in the story are giving him the, the tasks that that an not not just an adult would have, but that a lord would have. Right. Um, I'm wondering if I could hear you speak to like the difference between how a psychologist would approach a child, how a psychologist would approach an adult, and how do you know which is which is which? All right. Well, first I have to make some qualify qualifying statements that uh, I'm not a developmental psychologist and I'm not a clinical or counseling psychologist, so I don't have any you know clients or any practice or anything like that. But I can say that I think one of the themes of this chapter is having what are essentially uh, boys at different stages of their development, given these kind of more adult roles, or Mm -hmm. essentially they're thrust into more adult roles, uh, especially Bran and Rob. You know, I think when they are at the very end of the chapter, when they're kind of holding hands and... yeah. Rob is crying in the dark and Bran is observing that. I think that's, that just kind of shows how, how not ready they are to kind of assume these new roles, you know, especially given their, their, their ages. Right. So now Rob has to be Rob the Lord and he wasn't, you know, expecting to be Rob the Lord anytime soon. You know, Bran wasn't expecting to be disabled at this point he had his own dreams of you know what he wanted to do yeah at one point rob is told about benjen like the benjen's missing yeah and he starts just bellowing like it like you know like a disgruntled teenager or something yeah whereas he's sort of you know he's been doing a good job at pretending to be an adult right yeah until that point and then that strikes a nerve and he starts yelling at these men of the night's watch like he's not dead my uncle's not dead, you know, with it with a total sort of irrationality. 
not to say adults can't be irrational, but it does. I do get the sense with both Bran and Rob that they're children pretending to be adults. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question to you is, isn't that always the case? Like, isn't it always at some point children start pretending to be adults and then they kind of grow into it. And then they are. Yeah. It's a fake it till you make it. Yeah. Human development. And it's something that I think we all do is, you know, when you enter a new job, you've, it's usually, you know, you maybe get a little bit of training, but it's, uh, it's thrust upon you at some point and you just kind of grow into it, you know? Yeah, sure. It's never particularly easy, but I think that, you know, this also just highlights the kind of a commentary on this kind of feudalistic, very patriarchal and very hierarchical society where you, you know, you just, you have this, I forget how old Rob is, but he's what, like, 14, 15. Yeah, he's got to be. Yeah, four, I thought. I thought. I think 15? it was fourteen or fifteen yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's a huge responsibility. Now you're basically the the lord of you know this uh, this castle, or at least the, this lord uh, instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, on top of that, you've got to manage all these uh, other lords who pledge fealty to you in Winterfell. Winterfell. So it's you know it's a huge responsibility. And uh, I'm not sure he's up to the task and I'm not sure if he's, you know, ready to accept the possible death of his uncle. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, the other possibility is that, you know, maybe this is showing that Rob's got a little bit of the wolf's blood in him, so to speak. (laughs) Right. So that, that comes up from time to time. And, you know, Ari has definitely got some of that. She's got a, you know, a temper. I don't really see Bran is having that too much, but you know, we maybe he hasn't been in the right situation. Yeah. Show, These but. wolves are kind of avatars for their personality. Like the yeah. wolves have taken on their personality. So when, when Bran looks at summer, summer is a little bit weaker than the other wolves, but <laughs> Bran interprets the, the wolf to be a little bit smarter and sees everything. Yeah. But that's, I always discount that when I read this chapter because we're still getting all this from Brand's perspective. Sure. Yeah, yeah, of course, right? of so course, unless, his, his wolf is the smartest, right? <laughs> right, right. And so, unless Bran is uh, some, you know, time lord at this point, yeah, we're, sure. we're reading his, you know, this is his kind of viewpoint from above this whole time. Unless that's the case, I think he's he's just biased in his own viewpoint here of saying that his is the smartest (laughs) because i think if we you know if we really got in the heads of you know some of these other characters with wolves who are still sticking around i'm sure aria would say the same thing about hers yeah so i yeah i I discount that a little I, i i would also say that it's not so much it's not only just that the you know personality of the characters are projected onto the wolves it could also be vice versa because i think the the wolf human connection here is it really a two way street. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the, there's numerous time, well, maybe not numerous, but I think a couple times in the series where they talk about how it's not just that the, the human influences the wolf whenever you're skin changing, but it's also the wolf influencing the human, right? So mm-hmm. humans who spend too much time skin changed in their animals become more animal like and start to take on the characteristics of their, their animal. So I don't want to take any agency away from the wolves themselves. Cause I think they are bringing their own 
personalities to the table and probably are influencing the Stark children as much as the other way around. This is the age-old observation that people start to look like their pets. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, one of my <laughs> friends did uh, did research on that. No, tell me everything there's, about this. There's Well, there's first of all, there's, a I think, a selection bias. That's probably the strongest <laughs> yeah. thing that comes into it, right? So people tend to uh, adopt or choose pets that look like themselves at above chance levels. Uh, and then I think over time they end up, you know, even if they look a little bit different, they end up kind of grooming uh, the, their <laughs> dogs to look like themselves. And they could also maybe over time end up grooming themselves to look more like their dogs. Um, I think this is so entertaining. Well, it's, it's what's interesting. It's not just, uh, there's not just a phenomenon for dogs and, and their, you know, owners or caretakers. But there's also a reliable trend in uh, married couples, or not necessarily married yeah. couples, but just couples who stay together a long time, uh, that the the two people in a partnership tend to look more and more like one another as time goes on, which is kind of interesting. Sure. No, I mean, that, that makes, I mean, that's, that's, to me, that's interesting, but it's not as funny as the cross-species yeah. grooming habits, right? So it's yep. like, I... <laughs> This is how I think my dog looks better when they're groomed and then unconsciously looking in the mirror and thinking, I think I look better when I'm groomed like like my dog. Yeah. Well, part of it's just a, a matter of shared environment, right? As uh, as like uh, behavioral genet- geneticists would talk about, you know, shared environment things, uh, sometimes simply just living in the same place and encountering each other all the time. Uh, forms kind of a mutual feedback loop yeah yeah so, it's totally true so uh, it makes you become sense conditioned to your dog's behavior and your dog becomes conditioned to your behavior and so on yeah that's funny um let's talk a little bit about Tyrion here yeah speaking of behavioral genetics yeah so tell me <laughs> tell me uh more about that um this is uh one of those chapters where uh brands looking at Tyrion from close up he does notice explicitly his mismatched eyes one green eye and the one black eye. And that tends to be a telltale trait of basically a situation where you have genetic information from multiple sources, such as a kind of a a my two dads phenomenon. Now, this is going to sound super tinfoily from like uh, a time traveling fetus perspective. Yeah, bring it on, man. um, Bring it on. But uh, there's some on the boards uh, who've theorized that uh, Tyrion Lannister may be the product of his mother, of course. Obviously, that one's not under contention, who, uh, who uh, is uh, Joanna Lannister. And then his purported father, who is uh, Tywin Lannister. And then a uh, possible other father, which would be the Mad King, king himself, uh, Ares II. Right. So we know that uh, there are a couple instances where Ares is talking about, you know, uh, basically saying he wants to get with Joanna Lannister. And we know that uh, he's, you know, taken liberties with uh, other women uh, in the past. And we also know that uh, Ares and uh, Tywin had a huge falling out at some point. Right. Right. And we know that green eyes tend to be fairly characteristic. Green eyes and blonde hair tend to be fairly characteristic of at least this generation of Lannisters. And we know that uh, black eyes or very dark violet eyes 
are kind of more common among Lannisters, or not Lannisters, uh, Targaryens, uh, Targaryens yeah, right? Yeah. And we also know that in addition to Tyrion having these uh, two different colored eyes, he also has uh, kind of different uh, colors of hair. So we know that he's got both got blonde hair, but then he's also got streaks of uh, white uh, in that yeah. hair uh, as well. So, um, so what may have happened, and let me back up a little bit. We do know that Joanna Lannister uh, produced heterozygotic twins, right? So right, if we talk yeah. about, if we talk about uh, Jamie and um, Cersei, mm-hmm. they are heterozygotic fraternal twins, right? So that means two eggs released at the same time. Usually it's, you know, one from each fallopian tube gets fertilized by some dude. And then you get, uh, you know, two, what are essentially siblings, right? Mm -hmm. So they're twins, but they're not identical. So what is possible is that can also happen where you get two eggs released at the same time, but then you get one woman mating with two different men within a, let's say, 24, 48 hour period or so. Mm -hmm. So now you've got um, the possibility where each man fertilizes a different egg, right? And they fuse. Right. And sometimes they fuse. And so what you can get is a a person that's actually got parts of three people's DNA. So they've got DNA from their mother and then from both of the fathers. And what's interesting is we've already seen this in the Targaryen slash Blackfire line. We've seen this uh, before in uh, Maley's The Monstrous. Yes. So Maley's The Monstrous. <laughs> Is exactly that. So he's got a kind of, uh, I forget what the name for that is, but it's the, oh, vestigial twin, right? So he's got Mm -hmm. part of a face or a head that's like hanging off his shoulder or Mm -hmm. something like that. And what that is, is where you get two different fertilized eggs and they fuse together and one twin kind of dominates and more or less kind of consumes the other. So there's still this kind of vestigial sibling that's part of him in some way. I We don't know enough about Maley's to know whether <laughs> that, that head was active in some mm-hmm. way or not, or just, yeah. you know, kind of dangling there, lifeless more or less. But in theory, uh, Maley's would have uh, some of the genes of both himself and his presumably his... his twin sibling there right uh so i think through this exposition of both having jamie uh and cersei being fraternal twins and showing us that this can happen through Maley's the monstrous and showing us multiple times that Tyrion has these characteristic features and the fact that he's he's kind of called things that like he might be this kind of like gargoyle or sphinx or some sort of Mm. chimera which is a mix but you know can be construed as perhaps a mix between a lion and a dragon or something like that yeah that he's got actually both backgrounds i mean he'd be a a lannister regardless because of his mother Mm -hmm. but he may have some dragon blood in him so i'm fairly confident that if there are any you know lost or missing targaryens or secret targaryens I'm fairly confident that Tyrion is one of them, at least in part, even though I realize that a lot of people don't like that idea or theory. I mean, he's got dragon dreams. He dreams of dragons. Here's the one thing we know for certain. Hair color is really important for determining lineage in this story, right? That's That's not in dispute. Right. 
And uh and Tyrion has platinum blonde hair, right? Right. Um, you know, Peter Dinklage might not, but Tyrion in the book absolutely does, and that is a telltale sign of a Targaryen. But I mean, on top of that, all of the things that you just mentioned, right? So that you know, you really have to kind of start connecting, you know, pieces of yarn on a big board to to draw some of these connections. But Martin has already taught us to care about hair color and mm-hmm. to see hair color as a sort of a almost a sigil in, in a way in the way that sigils work in this world, right? Um, and so it because Martin's already taught us this lesson, I think it would behoove us at least to be open to the idea that someone like Tyrion is interesting in how he looks. Not just because that makes him more interesting, but because it's actually trying to tell us something about Tyrion. Yeah. So I like it, man. I like it. I mean, I am also open to Tyrion being a time-traveling fetus. That That's fine <laughs> with me, too. If both of these are true, it's possible that this chapter has two, not one, but two secret Targaryens, right? Mm-hmm. O- old Nan is something right. of a bastard yep. Targaryen. That's possible. And then uh, maybe maybe Tyrion, the uh, illegitimate, or I don't know, I don't know what's what, how you would how you'd frame it, but you know, a, a son in in a sense of the Mad King heiress. Right. Oh, it's it's also notable that uh, I think Tyrion, I, I don't know for whether it's the first or second time where he uses that phrase. You know, I'm sympathetic towards. Uh, Cripples, bastards, and broken things. Exactly. And so why why should he be sympathetic to bastards? Like the other thing, like the cripples make sense. The broken things, I guess, sort of make sense. But like, where does the, the bastards come in? Because that, you know, yeah. if he is a bastard, he himself doesn't know he's a bastard. So, yeah, he kind of says that like with a sort of a a shrewd grin. Yeah, but it does. But I do think it's true about him. I think he does. Ha- there, there is something in Jon Snow that he likes and that he identifies with. Mm-hmm. He's and I. It could just be like you, you're in a one down position, and I know what that's like yeah. because I've always lived my whole life in a one down position. So it could be as something as simple as that. But like, like, like we were, we're noting. You know, there are several little clues where some of these characters are speaking the truth in ways that they themselves may not understand, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think George does that a lot with his characters. Uh, I thought it was interesting that um, in Bran's dream, Mm -hmm. he's not, he he can't quite recall what's happening with his, uh, his own plot. However, in his dream, he gets a little bit closer to the truth. He he's climbing and then he's falling, and then he he's kind of flying to get away from these two gargoyles who kind of look like lions, and he knows that they mean to harm him, and so he tries to you know tell them I didn't hear I didn't overhear anything I didn't hear anything. To my mind, it makes most sense that these kind of represent Jamie and Cersei, right? And that, so he's, his dreams are kind of trying to tell him symbolically his own story, right? Right. I really love how Martin does this kind of thing. I think a, a more lazy author would actually have him 
you know, remember something of his past in a dream, but that's certainly not how dreams work in real life. So let me just mention a few notable introductions. Through Old Nan and Bran's reflection, we hear about several brands throughout history. Um, We hear the term White Walkers for the first time. I think this is our most robust introduction to Old Nan, although we, you know, we've met her before. Mm-hmm. But this is the most we hear about her backstory when we find out that, that Hodor is really named Walder. Yeah. Uh, show differences versus book differences. There's a few ways that you know certain scenes are framed that are a little bit differently. But I think the most notable difference here is that after Tyrion leaves the Great Hall, he has an exchange with Theon. Mm-hmm. And Theon and Tyrion kind of uh, discuss, among other things, a character named Roz in the show. Of course, Roz is one of the few characters in the show that's completely invented, not right. not in not in the books. Uh, so I thought that that's kind of an introduction to Roz in the show, whereas in this chapter, no introduction because that character doesn't exist. Right. One of the other really key differences is that we get. In in the book, we get Bran's dreams in a much different way. Yeah, yeah. you know the dreams are important in the show as well, but n- not they don't do like two lion gargoyles or you know Bran's inner thoughts or anything like that. And they they really c- probably couldn't do that very well anyway. Um, is, is there anything else that grabbed you or intrigued you about this chapter? One other thing that struck me is um, I have some unconventional and uncomfortable thoughts about Rickon and who Rickon is oh, or could be. Oh, gosh. All right. And I'm settling in. So I'm, I'm grabbing the popcorn. Yeah. So I think, um, so Rickon's, <laughs> Rickon's dire wolf is called Shaggy Dog, mm-hmm. right? So uh, for people who follow literature, like Shaggy Dog stories we, we mentioned before is basically like a, you know, a, kind of a, a throw off story or like a tangent that never really gets resolved, right? Or like a, a story that goes on and on for a while, but then has like a really dumb or just unsurprising mm-hmm. or kind of meh ending. Yeah, goes nowhere. Um, so what I think, what might be the case with uh, Shaggy Dog and Rickon is that it might actually be kind of the opposite of that in a way. And that we're kind of, lulled into believing that Rickon's kind of, you know, he's been off screen now for multiple books, but there's something very unnerving in that Rickon seems to have green sight in a way that Bran does not. Ooh, tell me and I actually that. think that the, the reeds when they come looking for, you know, the, the great last green seer get the maybe second best green seer and they totally miss Rickon just because he's so young. Oh, interesting. And that they actually fuck up. And this is seems like one of those George R. R. Martin things with prophecy where it's like, hi, we're here seeking the Messiah messianic figure. Yeah. And they picked the wrong one, right? They came really close. They but got they, Brian instead of Jesus. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I think, um, so Rickon at multiple times seems to know things he really shouldn't. Right. So he knows like that his dad has died. 
Yeah, like, he has that dream, and, and Brent yeah. has the same dream of, of Ned in the crypts, right? Right, right. Which, so has, which, of course, Mr. Lewin is like, dreams are dreams. But right. we know that they're not, and so that it's pretty clear that that Rickon has had a green dream. Right. And it's also the case that, you know, Bran's like, in this chapter, he's like, when are mom and dad coming home? I sure hope mom and dad come home. And at some point, I can't remember what chapter it's in, Rickon's like, they're never coming back. You know, and it's kind of like, <laughs> you're, it's like, you're, how old is Rickon? He's like four, five, I don't know. He's like, a, you know. Right. He's a, he's a, he's a wee lad. Right. So it's like, why is he, ha- that's not how we lads think. This is some like little man child yeah. going. I mean, I mean, he acts like a kid and all, but yeah, it's whatever like, the case, he's the one that we know ends up being right. Right. Yeah. And so I think there are these little, little touchings here and there that kind of mm. indicate that Rickon. So we, we know that all the Stark children seem to have at least a little bit of, you know, weird powers with, you know, maybe. Yeah, they're all kind of, they all maybe sort of Sansa have the potential. The least. Yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe Sansa having the least. And I think there's a potential that Rickon may actually have the most of this power. And we also know that he seems to be spending the most time out of anyone in his wolf, in his dire wolf. Yeah. Right? So he seems to be becoming the most wolf-like. And by the, you know, the flip side would be that uh, Shaggy Dog might also be becoming the most human-like, or at least in the terms of gaining human knowledge. Another point is that out of the the wolf's eye colors, right? So we get these, you know, uh, wolves have various eye colors. Uh, twice in this chapter, we're explicitly told that uh, Shaggy Dog's eyes were green fire. Yeah, and we're also told later on in the story, I think by the by the reeds or the children of the forest or something, that green seers. Like the most potent green seers are the ones that have the like the these kind of mossy green eyes or fiery green eyes or something like that. And they're even more, I guess, rare than the ones that have the yellow eyes, right? It's it's odd to me that that's, you know, those are the summer, you know, summer's eyes are the yellow ones. And yet uh, Shaggy Dog's eyes are the, the green ones. And Shaggy Dog seems to be the the biggest one of the bunch and kind of the fiercest uh, of the bunch as well. And I think that, you know, if, if we're, you know, doing mappings on to these kids uh, abilities, mm-hmm. uh, then, you know, that might be representative of that. Well, you're saying that Rickon may be the the most powerful. Yes. Yes. That Rickon might be the most powerful. Yeah. But and I think that if, even if you look literarily, which yeah. kid is closest to, to the woods, to the wilderness, to nature, yeah. right? Yep, yep. Clearly it's Rickon, right? And yep. and you know that the nature, the trees, is where the magic is. Yep. But I yeah. I think that um, there's a chance that Rickon is the exact opposite of a shaggy dog. And it might be that, you know, everyone thinks it's Brandon, but actually it's, it's Rickon. So... <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
And now Steve and I cover Kiss by Fire. Man, this is a packed episode. Tyrion finds out he has to marry Sansa, and Thoros brings Beric back to life. Ygritte seduces Jon. We have the introduction to Grey Worm. And of course, I think this episode is maybe the strongest episodes for Jamie, who gives his version of the Mad King slain. So here is Steve Osborne. Steve, would you rather be resurrected in a cave or have the stinkiest sex of your life in a cave? Whoa, okay. So, I, But I died in this cave? Yeah, you were probably murdered, you know, really horrifically. But then you're resurrected. So, like, just a little bit of time goes by, right? So, like, so I don't have a big, like, oh, my gosh, where am I now? What just happened? So that's the pro. I mean, that and living again. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you're also like, ah, is this the most sanitary place to be resurrected? Flip side, you know, the other one, like, this is not the most sanitary place to have sex. And usually that was like, that's the pro. I feel like, why not take the bath first? Like, there's ah, this hot spring right yeah. there. Yeah. Just take a bath first. Yeah, because we don't know. I mean, they, as far as we know, they've just, they've been walking. <laughs> I was, it does get to me a little bit just to know that everyone in this show, maybe with the exception of like a few people that never leave the Capitol, they just have to reek. Yeah. They just have to just they stink. probably get used to it, right? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course they do. Are some of them you'd think probably smell a little bit worse than others? Like, you know, Jamie's hand probably stinks pretty bad. Oh, yeah. Oof. But they, Jamie gets to take a bath. That's something. Yeah, he certainly does. Yeah, I mean, obviously bathing is bathing is a, is, is somewhat a half, it's thematic, right? I mean, yeah, it's Well, you got two cave scenes and you have and two, two bathing scenes, yeah. Two bath scenes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, though. Like, why wouldn't you bathe first? Um, maybe the thought is, like, look, she's 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 all about it. Her sexual forecast calls for a flurry of snow. <laughs> and she can't. She She's like, look, I got to find out now. Are you in? Are you out? Figuratively and literally. And then <laughs> and then maybe, like, maybe the bath changes it. You know, he gets in the bath and he's just like, that's pretty nice. I don't know if I need I mean, sex. So John's a maid, right? And so we we find that out. Mm-hmm. It's not like he really knows what's going on, and she's probably just she's probably never had a, the option to have bathed before sex before, maybe. right? Maybe that doesn't make sense, right? Like maybe like the same way that like John invents cunnilingus. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe this becomes like a realization like oh crap you know we could have been we could have been in here first huh yeah. it was the, the first time in the history of westeros that wow. this has been performed right even little fingers like oh, i would have never even guessed that was an option <laughs> we get to see Tyrion and uh, lady olena together yeah that's good stuff i i i mean I love that line where she says, look, I, I was expecting so much more out of you. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. Just, there just, we are. You're a browbeaten bookkeeper. Yeah, that's great. Well, and it's so interesting, too, because it's one of the first times, I think, where you see Tyrion. Like, Tyrion holds his own better against his own father. 
Yeah, he gets out Tyrion. Yeah, because when he went this with even when his father's being cruel and terrible, he still he still feels like he's like, yeah, like he'll be hurt, but there's still the sense of like he still can get a jab or he he, mm. he had but this was just and I don't know if it's just the the like you know, to Tyrion's credit, he's like actually taking his role pretty seriously, and it is just a dull role where he's like, I'm, I'm an accountant, and uh, and he just is now like so. So now he's like has an opportunity to in the accounting be able to play the the game that he likes so much, and uh, and he got he got more into the books than he did the game. Didn't realize that all of it is uh, is the game. That's right. That's right. We have a uh, a couple more items to add to our dismemberment count. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lord Karstark's head. Yeah. So that comes off. And uh, one that I forgot from before was Davos is like his fingers. He's like has four fingers. He carries around his neck. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that was pre-show, but um, that's... But, that, they, but they were present. And then, you know, and that sort of that the jamie hand kind of there's a parallel there right that's right jamie and brienne in the tub yeah Uh, clearly this is the most vulnerable they've been with each other sure uh this is like tubs do it that man i uh yeah try taking a bath and 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 like putting on airs just doesn't happen this is like the closest these two have come to i mean we know that they respect each other, right? Right. And then they're starting not to hate each other a little bit. We've saw, seen that already. And now finally, Jamie's in this position of vulnerability that like even more so than we've seen him before. And we get to hear something about the story of how he became the Kingslayer. Right. And this is the kind of thing that Martin is just really good at doing. He'll take a character that's clearly a bad person, but he'll put that person through enough realistic pain or realistic, I don't know, misfortune or something like that. Like a moral fork where they, you know, they've got to make a choice between being evil or really evil. And the fact that they didn't choose to be really evil and only evil makes you like them a little bit. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. So well, you know, because there's not a lot of savory, right? Like we we talked about it. Like I mean, the, you know, Ned's dead. Yeah, yeah. And, and you got Rob, and I think Rob's close, but he's still not like. I'd be, I'm curious what the fans think, but like Rob is like, he feels like a narrative mover more than like. I I, I think I think Talisa helps you know sort of give him a little little depth, but like for the most part, Rob feels like he's just not fleshed out, and I think that that's. Because as a person, I don't know that he's truly fleshed out, right? I mean, everything everything about Rob feels like he's like he hasn't figured out what he's about yet. Um, he only knows who he is through the lens of his like role or responsibility. Now that his father's gone, so when you're looking for a savory character, there's just not a bunch of them, right? I mean, it's easy to to get on board with the characters that you enjoy watching, but then you're like. Are any of these people really good? Yeah. So when there's complication like this, it's easier to gravitate towards them and maybe feel empathy where in another situation, you'd still be like, nah, this guy's still a guy who pushes kids out of windows. 
because there's so because there's so many unsavory characters around. I'm glad you brought Robin to this conversation because I think that there is something of a parallel there between Rob. Rob is sort of pushing the theme of justice versus vengeance that we've talked about. Right. In this world there, you know, we talked about the taboo of sort of killing a guest or a host. Mm-hmm. One of the deep taboos is kin slain. You're cursed if you kill a, a member of your kin. Right. Okay. All right. So I think in this episode, the car Starks are like a distance relatives of the Starks. And so you get that sense that, look, you can strike me down, but uh, you're going to be cursed because actually I'm distant kin to you. So that sort of world building is done with the Rob Karstark narrative. But then it kind of informs this story that Jamie's telling because Jamie's taken a, a vow not to kill, you know, to protect the king. Right. Right. But he's also sort of living in a world where it's like deeply taboo to kill your own father. Mm-hmm. So now he, he's sort of at this, this moral fork where he has to decide, okay, am I going to become a kinslayer and even worse patricide, or am I going to choose regicide? Mm-hmm. And he makes his choice one, you know, he makes he not just makes a choice between those two in choosing his own father, but he also saves the city. So we're to take this as a true narrative. I think that we're supposed to think, think of it in that way yeah i mean it's never confirmed i mean even in the books this this is jamie's version of the story but i've always took it to be like oh this is this is what makes jamie make sense okay so i've always taken it as okay this is actually jamie's honest recollection of these events so anyway i liked i like that they juxtaposed rob becoming a kinslayer and therefore being cursed versus jamie choosing to save Tywin and being cursed because then in doing that, he has to kill the king. Okay. I had took this as like, I thought maybe this was um, Jamie doing his, his more of a deceptive thing is what I was taking it at. And I guess the reason why I took it that way is because he said he killed the pyromancer and I thought we'd seen the pyromancer or is there another pyromancer? I just, I would imagine that there was more than one pyromancer. Okay. Um, uh, all right, so Jamie and Brienne in the tub. So Jamie, I think he needs to spend a little bit of time at HR. I mean, th- if this isn't sexual harassment, it's 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 getting <laughs> real close to sexual harassment. Yeah, I mean, it is. It definitely it's a it's a familiar it's a familiar move. <laughs> I mean, he is somewhat. He's probably delusional. You know, he's just gone through this horrible treatment. Uh, where he got his arm burned off with boiling wine or whatever. He's not in the best state, but still, I mean, he could have chosen the other tub. Yeah, the tub was there. Plenty of room in that tub. Also, I mean, I from from Brianne's standpoint, I'm not sure if she's like, oh my God, I don't want him in my tub. He's like, I don't want that stinky arm in this tub. He's got to just reek. Oh, and that arm, if that thing gets in the water, forget it. Forget it. I, I, I'll tell you what, I do think she was scrubbing her skin too hard. Yeah, Jamie, Jamie had a point. That was really, really, you're taking it right off. Yeah. But Well, so, so what, is that, what is that moment? Is that moment a, like, is that supposed to be symbolizing that she is trying to shed some, some uh, figurative skin? Or is this a, 
maybe she doesn't bathe a bunch. I I took it as a little bit darker, and I've got no no way to back this up. But they cut off his hand, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know what happens to Brian after his hand gets cut off. No, that's true, and that's that's kind of what I was taking it is that there's there was a reason to for the extra scrub. Do you think? All right, so they're they're certainly starting to look at each other with more affection, but are you getting any sort of romantic connection between the two? Um, I don't know that, that that's a, that's a really good question because I mean, Jamie, from what we understand is like, there's only been Cersei for him. That's right. And, and it's only and, been Renly for her and, and our, the, the sense is that it's only in her mind. Right. 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 So, but they're both loyalty is kind of their bag for the most part. They're both, yeah, they're both really loyal. That's right. Um, loyal maybe to the wrong things, but um, feels like if there is, it has everything to do with just going through the tragedy together. Like, you know, like when Christy Brinkley leaves Billy Joel because, you know, the helicopter pilot saves her from the mountain situation. And, you know, of course, now she's she leaves Billy Joel for the helicopter pilot. Um, but, you know, she was just looking for some reason, right? Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, like every he can't every, sing all of the time. <laughs> no, <laughs> and that yeah. yeah, he don't. He would really have to. I like the final scene where he kind of swoons and she and she's like cradling him. Yeah, uh, that was very uh, sort of a gender reversal there. He's got yeah. the long hair. He's being super vulnerable. She's sort of being stoic and analytical about the story. She's clearly bigger and stronger. I thought that was an interesting uh, little swap there. Yeah, no, that was... Well, she cut his meat for him, or she helped him cut his meat. That... I mean, that's the thing. Is it becomes very childlike, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. That, there, there's that... It's a, it's a very... It's a, that's where almost the romance part of it feels a little bit not quite there because it does feel like he's infantile in many ways, and she's and she's almost more like a stern father in some ways, right? Like... She holds him when he collapses, not when he needs comfort. Yeah, uh, yeah. She cuts his meat, but just because she was kind of getting tired of his inability to do it. I mean, well, he and she doesn't know if she can trust him, and and sure. you know, and probably rightly so, you know. And he can be vulnerable with her because I think deep down he still feels like he's he's always a step ahead, right? Arya's running into some of these class distinctions with Gendry. Basically, he says, look, these guys are a family. I've never had a family. And she says, well, I could be your family. And he said, you'd always be my lady. Right. I take this to mean that, look, we're never going to be equals. There's this class distinction between us. And so we're never going to be as close as you want us to be. Right. Because uh, wanting it's not enough. That's right. That's right. And and it didn't quite work with with Micah the butcher's boy either, right? She befriended him, but every, everyone else in this upper elite class, they viewed him as you know trash, right? And so there's no way that he was going to be able to you know ever be her true friend. And Tyrion has deals with this as well because he marries this commoner, right? Mm-hmm. That that marriage was never going to work out, um, and that brings us to maybe the biggest shocker of the episode, Steve. 
Joffrey's out of the picture, but Sansa has not one, not two, but three possible suitors. Yeah. Sansa and Loras, that, that's what she wants, right? Right. Because she's the only person that, that doesn't know. <laughs> she's the only one that doesn't know. She's the <laughs> only one. Um, uh, Littlefinger, who kisses her hand, right? Uh, this is clearly, this is, she's, Littlefinger has designs, right? <sighs> and of course, Tyrion, <laughs> the, the reluctant suitor. The reluctant, he's so great when he says, he, he knows that foisting himself onto her is, is going to be torture for her. Right. <laughs> like he really, he knows exactly how this is going to play out. He's like, you know, I'm gross, right? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So the, 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 there's that. And then, of course, Tywin, if Tywin gets his way, both those, both those Lannister kids are going to get married off. Now, this whole thing just feels like, like he's putting them on a timeout. <laughs> it really is. They they have no say so in any. And they're so like, but dad. I mean, that's what that whole scene is, right? <laughs> and she's so smug when he gets, you know, you're gonna marry Sansa, and he's just like, nah. And then she's like, oh yeah, and you're gonna marry the gay knight. <laughs> say what? Oh my gosh! So. uh so now, now we have that. That's a little. All right. So let's say you're Sansa and you've got a choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the thing, right? I mean, that's that's where it does get. I mean, like if she knew, you know, if she knew the one thing that she likes, she's the only one that doesn't know. Uh, she might have a different take on it. Um or it could be that she's, you know, she she likes the way it looks. Like socially, this is sort of a a very to the outside world. Her and Loras look like the perfect match, and that may be what she cares about. Right. She's still young, and it's like, okay, look, I I don't have to have this real awkward <laughs> relationship. I just, you know, we could we probably have a lot more in common than we realize. He looks real good, man. Oh yeah, he's. So if that's what she cares about, then uh, then maybe that's the right choice. Um, yeah. Well, Tyrion. <laughs> now Tyrion's the person that we probably like the most. Right. And yet, you know, it's just gonna be miserable for everyone. Was... <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. everyone. And Littlefinger, he's just he's just gross. Yeah, I mean the thing is, Littlefinger's off the table, man. Just you know what I mean? There's just no, there's no like, oh, maybe she could learn to. No, no, no. He's. I do get the sense though that he she's not me entirely as... grossed out by him when he kisses her hand. Yeah, but then that could also be like, oh, he's, he seems important. You know, I mean, she still kind of falls in. She, she is a tough one to figure out with that. What you think her... that you could ever marry someone with a nickname of Littlefinger? Well, not to be too graphic, but if I had to marry a guy, I would hope his fingers were little. <laughs> and on that note, I think we're done. <laughs> yeah. 
For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to talk about the last hero, mentioned here in part in Old Nan's story as she tells it to Bran. I'll just read directly from A World of Ice and Fire. This is a wonderfully illustrated book that was put out by Martin and his collaborators, Elio Garcia and Linda Antonson. I will mention that Linda will be a guest on the podcast in an upcoming episode, so you can look forward to that. Anyway, Linda and company write, How the Long Night Came to an End is a Matter of Legend, as all such matters in the distant past have become. In the North, they tell of the last hero who sought out intercession of the children of the forest, his companions abandoning him or dying one by one as they faced giants, cold servants, and the others themselves. Alone, he finally reached the children despite the efforts of the White Walkers, and all the tales agree that this was a turning point. Thanks to the children, the First Men and the Night's Watch banded together and were able to fight and win the Battle for the Dawn, the last battle that broke the endless winter and sent the others fleeing to the icy north. So, so as you can see, the story is somewhat skeletal here. There was some speculation that the story would be instructive for how the story arc of Ice and Fire would end. That might still be the case. Then there was talk of a of a prequel that would talk about the Long Night and the Last Hero. And then, of course, that didn't come to fruition. So the story remains somewhat vague. But Old Nan seems to know about these things, and so here is what she says to Bran in our chapter. Oh, my sweet summer child, what do you know of fear? Fear is for the winter, my little lord. When the snows fall a hundred feet deep, and the ice and the wind come howling from the north, when the sun hides its face for years at a time, and little children are born and live and die all in darkness, while the dire wolves grow gaunt and hungry, and the White Walkers move through the woods. Thousands and thousands of years ago, a winter fell that was cold and hard and endless beyond all memory of man. There came a night that lasted a generation, and kings shivered and died in their castles, even as swineherds in their hovels. Women smothered their children rather than see them starve, and cried and felt their tears freeze on their cheeks. In that darkness, the others came for the first time. They were cold things, dead things, that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun, and every creature with hot blood in its veins. They swept over holdfasts and cities and kingdoms and felled heroes and armies by the score, riding pale, dead horses, leading hosts of the slain. All the swords of men could not stay their advance, and even maidens and suckling babes found no pity in them. They hunted the maids through the frozen forests and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. Now these were the days before the Andals came, and long before the women fled across the narrow sea from the cities of Roin. And the hundred kingdoms of those times were the kingdoms of the first men, who had taken those lands from the children of the forest. Yet here and there, in the fastness of the wood, the children still lived on in their wooden cities and hollow hills, and the faces in the trees kept watch. So as cold and death filled the air, the last hero determined to seek out the children, in hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. He set out into the dead lands, with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest, 
in their secret cities. One by one his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog, and his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it. And the others smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders as big as hounds. And that's when Maester Lewin opens the door, Hodor comes in, and thus the story is interrupted. And that, my sweet summer child, is all that we know about the last hero. Now, if you want to go further with this, you really kind of have to latch on to this theory of this grand global myth, wherein you can kind of glean from the legend of Azor High and a few other prehistory heroes that maybe it's all the same person, or they all descend from the same Ur myth or something like that. But that, perhaps, is a subject for another day. And that's all for this week.